question. Where are we running from you? Where are we running? Because we're all doing it. And that your spirit would reveal those things, even as we've been studying conscience, our conscience would be pricked as we study that we would see where we ourselves are running, just like Jonah. That we wouldn't stand afar from him and look at him and point the finger and say, how could he do that? But we would say, wait, we're doing the same thing. So God, be our guide. I pray that you would multiply this message, that the preparation for this message is just simply those the fish and the loaves that are given to you, but you are the one that has to multiply it miraculously to bring satisfaction and nourishment and sustenance to the hearts of those who would hear. So God, may the hearers of this message hear a better message than is actually preached only by your spirit doing that work. Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So we're going to just look at three verses this morning, just staring at three verses. We're going to look at uh, God's clear decree to Jonah. God gives a clear decree to Jonah. And then we're going to look at Jonah's calculated defiance. God's clear decree, Jonah's calculated defiance. Those are the only two points that we're going to look at this morning. Let's begin with God's clear decree. This is verses 1 through 2. God's clear decree, verses 1 through 2, begins, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord came. This is a phrase that's used over 100 times in the Old Testament. This is a phrase that signifies a prophecy is being given to a prophet. Prophecy is uh, a lot less of what we would think it is. Normally when you ask somebody, what's a prophecy? They, they would say it's predicting the future. That's not just what a prophecy is. In fact, more often than not, a very, very small percentage of the prophecies in the Bible are actually predicting the future. More often than not, the prophecies in the Bible are just God saying, here's what I know, here's what I'm saying, here's what I'm decreeing. In fact, this one, just go and tell Nineveh. Go and speak against Nineveh. Not tell them that uh, something's going to happen in the future and something's going to happen. No, this is just, uh, this is the word of the Lord coming. Thus saith the Lord. This is a prophecy. This is a line of a prophecy being given to somebody. The word of the Lord came uh, that, again, appears over 100 times in the Old Testament, and Jonah had already had this happen to him. He's a prophet. We studied this last week. In 2 Kings chapter 14, Jonah had already received this phrase, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and specifically the word of the Lord was, go tell Israel that though they are wicked, though they have not repented, I still am going to give mercy and grace and love and let them expand their borders. I'm going to bless them. I'm going to prosper them. That probably made Jonah very popular, that message. Hey, though you guys haven't repented, you're going to be blessed. Amos, who comes into the north from the south, calling the north to repent, probably not so popular, right? A message of repent or else you'll be judged probably was greeted with a less popularity than Jonah's, hey, you haven't repented, but you're still going to be blessed. Hosea, again, uh, calls Israel a harlot. Probably didn't get him uh, very high on the popularity chart as well. You are a harlot, he calls Israel. Jonah had a, an amazing message the very first time in 2 Kings. God's going to prosper you. He had already received this, the word of the Lord came. So he's receiving it a second time. And can you just imagine, like if this were an envelope and it said from God to Jonah, can you just imagine how excited Jonah would be the first time he received that envelope and he looked inside, it was a prophecy that was an amazing prophecy that made him very popular, very liked, very loved by his people. And here he gets another envelope and he opens it up and he's excited to read it. Maybe this one's going to make me even more popular. He can't wait. And as he opens it up, 
he has absolutely no idea that he's going to read the words that he's about to read. He's used to hearing these words, but he's used to hearing the words, go to Israel, not go to Nineveh. But God's going to tell him, go not to Israel, but to Nineveh. And that tells us right off the bat that this is an unprecedented book. Right off the outset, right from the beginning, this is an unprecedented book for two reasons. Number one, Jonah is being sent to Nineveh, to a Gentile territory. This has never happened before in the Old Testament. There's been places where uh, Israelites are told to live in such a way that the Gentiles would come to them, would be blessed by seeing how amazing they are in worshiping the Lord, and they want to come gather with Israel and be a part of the nation. But this has never happened to go tell, to go to a Gentile nation, go into their capital city and speak the words of the Lord. Secondly, this hasn't happened because this is a decree to go to the worst people on the face of the earth. The Assyrians, that Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, the Assyrians are the most wicked people in the known world at that time. They're the most evil, most vile, most despicable. Nahum chapter 3 verse 1 says that Assyria is a bloody city. Nineveh is a bloody city, completely full of lies and pillaging. Her prey never departs, constantly devouring people. Here are the words of the king of Nineveh, not the king during Jonah's time, the king before Jonah's time, a man by the name of Asher Nasserpal. He's the king of Nineveh, of Assyria. He's the king in Nineveh over Assyria. He says these words, quote, I built a pillar over and against the city gate, a city I conquered, and I flayed and skinned alive the chiefs who had revolted and covered the pillar with their skins. Skins them alive, covers a pillar with their skins. Some of them I walked up in, I walled up inside the pillar that I built. So he walls them up alive. He buries them alive, as it were, inside the pillar so that you could still hear them screaming as they die. Others I cut off their limbs. Uh, I cut off the limbs of the officers who rebelled. Many captives I burned with fire. I burned them alive with fire. Many I took as living captives. I cut off their noses, their ears, their fingers. Many I put out their eyes. I made one pillar of living and another of dead heads, and I brought their heads to tree trunks around the city. Their young men and maidens I burned alive in the fire. Twenty men I captured alive. I sealed them up in the wall of my palace, and the rest of the warriors I consumed with thirst in the desert of the Euphrates. God's decree to Jonah is go to these people. They are terrorists. They're on a reign of terror in the world around them, known as the most horrific people, and God says, go to them. And he says, do it immediately. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, verse 2, arise, go. Arise, go now. It's immediate. Arise and do this now. And cry out to Nineveh. Cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. That's the decree that God gives. Very simple. There's nothing complex about this decree. Secondly, let's look at Jonah's calculated defiance. God's decree is simple, it's clear. And Jonah, in calculated defiance, disobeys. Verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah does the exact opposite. I mean, first he obeys by getting up. That's the whole point. Arise, he gets up 
But that's as far as his obedience goes. He gets up and he runs in the exact opposite direction. He goes west to the sea instead of east over the land. If you're going to go from Galilee to Nineveh, first of all, you would never take a boat. There's a highway over the land that gets you from Jerusalem to Nineveh. Secondly, Tarshish is as far away as you can go. It's literally the edge of the known world. It's as far, uh, the edge of Spain. Nineveh is about 500 miles away from Jerusalem. Tarshish is about 2,500 miles away from Jerusalem. Nineveh is east, Tarshish is west. And just to inform us of how shocking this is, how deliberate, how calculated, and how shocking his defiance is, you can see that Jonah puts in this verse three times the word Tarshish. You can see verse three. Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Three times. In fact, in Hebrew, there's a form that would be used to create intensity and almost a poetic way of speaking. It's a form called a, a chiastic structure where line one will match the bottom line, line two will match the second to last line, line three, the third to last line, so on and so forth, until you get to that middle climactic line. There's a chiastic structure in this verse. Line one matches line seven, line two matches line six, line three matches line five, and line four is the dead center. It's a crux. It's a middle of this verse. Line one the first line, line seven, the last line, and the middle line, the crux line, line four, all have the word Tarshish inside of it. It's very poetic. It's very purposeful. And the, the idea of what Jonah is saying is, can you believe my defiance? I'm going to Tarshish. Can you believe I'm going to Tarshish? As far as possible, I want to get away from God's decree. He does it by going to Joppa. Joppa doesn't belong to Israel. Joppa's on the outskirts. So Jonah says, how can I get away in kind of an incognito way, right? He wants to leave Israel, but he's known in Israel. So how do I get away from Israel to flee, though I'm popular and known as a prophet? I'm going to go to Joppa. I'm going to go the exact opposite direction through a city where I can remain incognito. And I'm going to pay money. He goes to Joppa. He finds a ship which is going to Tarshish, and he pays a fare this is probably a hefty fee because he's going a very long way. Probably a considerable amount of money. Which already, there's an implication. Defiance always has a price to pay in more ways than just one. He goes down to Joppa, he pays a hefty price, and he gets on a ship. Can you imagine his reasoning? Can you imagine his his arguing in his own mind. Maybe it looked like this. Well, surely that's not what God wants me to do. In fact, he probably just got his prophecy wrong. It's an incorrect direction, and therefore I'll make up my own direction that I'm guessing is what he wants me to do. I'm going to go a different direction. Surely not there, not Nineveh. I'm going to go a different direction. And maybe as he's trying to argue this in his own mind to try and make his heart okay with disobeying God, he says this, there's an open door at Joppa. Whoa, look at this. The Lord has provided a ship that's sailing exactly where I want to go, the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. How amazing is God's providence that an open door to sail from Joppa to Tarshish is right there. 
I think we need to be careful. This is a great implication for us as well. We need to be careful to play the open door will of God game. Right? We need to be careful to just say, as long as God doesn't close a door in my face, that must mean it's his will. I know people that have directly contradicted God's revealed word in the scriptures because they've played that game. They've said, well, if God wants to stop me, he'll stop me. Does God approve of Jonah going to Tarshish? No, not at all. But God doesn't stop him by giving him a closed door at Joppa. And let's be honest, if there was a closed door at Joppa, he would have found another port city to go to Tarshish to or from. So be careful. Also be careful the other way. Be careful of playing closed door theology of God's will. Think of Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah never had one convert in his ministry. Decades of preaching the word of God and not one person believed his message. Closed door every single time. Slammed door in his face every single time. Does that mean he wasn't accomplishing the will of God? No. Now, obviously, we can use open door and closed door. We're praying for God to direct us, and God has promised us uh, that he's going to do that in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. If we don't uh, lean on our own understandings but acknowledge him in every way, he'll direct us, and sometimes that's through open doors, sometimes that's through closed doors. Just be careful that it's always an open or a closed door theology for finding God's will. That's why God has given us so many other means of discerning and confirming and affirming his will. First of all, and most clearly and most obviously, his word. God had given his word to Jonah, go do this. So anything other than doing that is not God's will. So start with the word of God. Secondly, ask the people in your church, ask your elders, ask those around you, submit yourself to their wisdom, their insight, their discernment, their love for you, their prayers for you. Ask other godly people around you. Don't just instantly go to, I'll figure this out on my own with an open or closed door theology of God's will. Jonah gets on a boat, pays the fare. He just immediately goes down to the bottom of the boat to hide. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be seen. I don't want to be known. This is Jonah in absolute defiance saying, I will not do what God is asking. There's another interesting hint in this verse where Jonah, I believe, is wanting us to see how calculated his defiance is. And it's the phrase, from the presence of the Lord. It appears two times in verse 3. From the presence of the Lord. Now, some would say that this is Jonah wanting to get away from God, that somehow God's omnipresence doesn't register in, God, in Jonah's mind. That could be, but I, I don't think that's the case. I don't think Jonah is saying, I'm going to get to a place where God doesn't exist. I don't think that's what he's doing. From the presence of the Lord is a phrase uh, that is used uh, over and over again by Elijah, the prophet. And it's used as Elijah is standing in the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, in the temple, as God's prophet, saying, God, I submit to your decrees. Whatever you tell me to do, I will do it. Give me your word, and I'll go speak it to the people. Elijah consistently says over and over again, I'm standing in the presence of the Lord to do his will. When he speaks, I will speak. I do God's bidding. I'm his servant. I'm commissioned as his spokesperson. Elijah might have been one of Jonah's teachers as a prophet in Israel. And Elijah knew that his job was to do whatever God told him. I think that Jonah, instead of saying, I want to flee God's physical manifest presence, I think Jonah is saying, I don't want to do what God's asking me to do as a prophet. From the presence of the Lord, where is God's presence? God's presence dwells in Jerusalem, in the temple. 
I'm going to get away from the temple, and I'm going to leave my job as a prophet. I'm no longer a prophet. Get somebody else. That's what he's saying. Jonah is saying, get somebody else to do what you want them to do. I'm not doing it. Hosea's up. He's fair game. Amos, get him. Get somebody else, but not me. I quit. I'm refusing to function as your servant anymore. You have to find somebody else. I think one of the reasons we can see that is in chapter 2, verse 4. When Jonah is in the belly of the fish, he prays and he says, So I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. I've been expelled from your sight, but I'm going to look again to your holy temple. I'm going to go back to doing what you told me to do. I'm going to look again to that place. I'm going to go back to that place. I'm going to once again resume the prophetic duties that you've given me to do. I'm going to go to Nineveh. I'm going to obey you. So I think in chapter 1, verse 3, I think Jonah is saying, Whatever it is you want me to do, cancel it. I quit. No longer your servant. You get somebody else. And he flees. He runs away. That leads us to ask the question, why does Jonah not want to go to Nineveh? Why does he refuse? Why does he not want to go? We see clearly his deliberate defiance. It's calculated. It's intentional. But why? Why does he not want to go? I want to give you eight reasons this morning for why Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. It's not an obvious answer, by the way. It's multifaceted. There's only one explicit answer given in this book, but we can pull a lot of other implications from what's going on outside of Jonah and, I believe, what's going on inside of Jonah. Number one, just clearly, I, I think he might be afraid of dying. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he might be afraid of dying. That's a very logical fear to have. As I told you what Asher Nashropal said uh, of his own people that he was conquering, they are a terrorist city. They're a terrorist state. Nineveh is a terrible place. I mean, how long would a Jewish rabbi last in 1941 standing on the streets of Berlin calling Nazi Germany to repent? How long is that going to last? It would be like us as missionaries going to a remote village in somewhere in the Middle East and, and calling out to ISIS, repent, believe in Jesus Christ, who is Lord, who is Savior, Allah is not God, how long are we going to last? I think he might be afraid of dying. Secondly, we know that he hated the Assyrians because of their ethnicity. The second reason why he doesn't want to go to Nineveh is he hates the Assyrians because of their ethnicity. They're Gentiles. They're not Jews. So not only is he afraid of them, he just hates them because of who they are. There's a bit of na uh, nationalistic pride in Jonah. More than that, there's a lot of racism in Jonah. Jonah's saying those people are not worthy and deserving of God's grace and God's message of hope of salvation and redemption because of who they are. They're, they're outside of the Jewish community. They're not, they're not Jews. So they're not deserving of God's message. I think it's very interesting that God would send a prophet to Assyria. One of the reasons why God's going to send a prophet to Assyria is to tell all of Israel that they are not indispensable. There are other nations and other people groups that are important to God. And Jonah doesn't like hearing that. And it didn't just happen in Jonah's day. It happened in Jesus' day. You remember Jesus' first sermon that Jesus ever preached was a sermon that he delivered in Nazareth, in his hometown. And it was a sermon that said, that God loves Jews and Gentiles alike. In fact, in the days of the prophets, most people that were being saved and healed and helped by God were Gentiles, not Jews. And as Jesus says that in the synagogue in Nazareth, 
the whole synagogue rises up in anger that he would say that God loves Jews and Gentiles alike and is giving the exact same message of hope and salvation to both of them, that they rise up and they try to take him and throw him off a cliff and kill him. That's how much they hated non-Jewish people. Simeon prayed over Jesus. We studied this this last Christmas. Simeon sang a song over Jesus, and part of the song is that he will be a light to the Gentiles. We're going to see this in the book of Revelation when we get back to studying it together. In heaven, every tribe, tongue, nation, language, people group will be represented. Every ethnic group will be in heaven. Jonah doesn't like that idea. And so he says they don't deserve the message. We're going to look at this in more detail later on, but how how relevant for us today when we see the discussion of racism, how rampant it is in so many places in America, we see it in Jonah as well. And this is a man of God, a prophet of God. His job is literally a job, an occupation to speak the words of God to the people around him. And yet he has racism in his own heart. So number one, he's probably afraid of dying. Number two, he hates the Assyrians because of their ethnicity. Number three, he also hates the Assyrians because they're so wicked. So he doesn't just hate them because of their ethnicity. He hates them because of their deeds, their wickedness. He doesn't like the Assyrians, that's true, but not merely because of their ethnicity, but because of their wickedness. They're so wicked. They're terrorists. They're ruled by terror. They're ruling by terror. They developed impaling as a form of execution, which would later become crucifixion. They began what would become crucifixion. We have accounts of people who were impaled crying out for others to kill them as they were dying by being impaled. It was gory. It was gruesome. It was despicable. And Jonah just wants to see God destroy them. They deserve death. God destroy them. Number four. Jonah doesn't want to see God working through Nineveh. Jonah doesn't want to see God work through Nineveh. This is another reason why he decides, I'm not going to go to Nineveh. I don't want to see God using them in a good way, in a prosperous way. I don't want to see God working through them. Specifically, I think that Jonah is remembering prophecies that God had given that if Israel does not repent, surrounding nations to the north, which that's Assyria, are going to come in and destroy them. So if... Jonah doesn't go to Nineveh and share the message of hope through repentance and salvation and redemption coming if they would turn from their wicked ways. Then they won't turn. They have no ability to turn to God. God will have to judge them and takes out the entire northern uh, kingdom above Israel. And therefore, Israel has no oppressor, has no other nation that's going to come in as a foe to destroy them. I don't think that Jonah wants to see his own people destroyed. So he thinks, if I can get away from this command of God and I don't share that message of hope to the Assyrians, then Israel might stand a chance of survival. They might stand a chance of being able to exist. They might stand a chance of being able to continue as a nation, even despite their lack of repentance. Number five. Number five. Jonah knew, and this is the only explicit reason that's given in the book of Jonah. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because Jonah knew that God would show them mercy. Jonah knew what God was going to do. If you go to chapter 4, verse 2, he says as much. Jonah prays and he says to the Lord, please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall 
This I fled to Tarshish. What's the this? I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. You're slow to anger. You're abundant in loving kindness. And you are one who relents concerning calamity. This is the explicit reason given. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because Jonah knows that if he goes there, God will be gracious. God will show them mercy. Now, how does he know this? He knows this not only because of the character of God that we're going to study when we get to chapter 4, but he also knows this because of the way that God says the decree in verses 1 and 2. Look at these verses again. God says in verse 2 to Jonah, Arise, go to the city of Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it because, here's the clue, their wickedness has come up before me. Some of your translations might say their wickedness has risen up before me. Remember the last time that we saw that, or the very first time that we saw that in the Bible? Jonah would know. It's in Genesis 18 and 19. It's when God tells Abraham that Sodom and Gomorrah will be destroyed because, quote, their wickedness has risen up before me. It's come up before me. But notice what God does not tell Abraham to do. God does not then say, Abraham, go in and tell them that their wickedness has come up before me. What does God tell Abraham to do? Go get your cousin and get out of there. Get out as fast as you can. Flee as fast as you can. So here's what Jonah's thinking. Jonah's not a dumb person. Jonah hears these words and hears, go to Nineveh and tell them this because their wickedness has risen up against me. Jonah knows the last time those words were spoken or the first time those words were spoken, they were spoken to Abraham and Abraham was just warned, Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed. There's no hope for them. Don't go talk to them. They're going to be destroyed. So here, Jonah hears these words and he hears, wait, I have to go tell Nineveh? The only reason God would send me to Nineveh is if there's some hope that they're going to repent. If God were just saying, I'm going to destroy them, he wouldn't tell me to go there. This is like Jonah's looking at the building that Nineveh is in, and God says, there's going to be a fire, pull the the fire alarm. And Jonah says, no, we don't want to give them a warning of your judgment. We don't want to pull the fire alarm, just send judgment now. He knows that if he is sent by God to go to Nineveh, that God wants to give them hope to repent. Jonah doesn't want them to have hope. He wants them to be destroyed immediately. No fire alarm being pulled. That's the explicit reason why Jonah doesn't go. All the other ones are possibilities. I think that they're true. They're, some of them are implications. Some of them are, are assumptions. But I think that the main uh, explicit statement that Jonah gives us in chapter 4 is so clear. And it informs everything else. He wants Nineveh to die. That leads us to the sixth uh, reason why. Why does he not go? This is an implication of number five. He doesn't want to be a part of God's saving plan. He doesn't want to be a part of God's saving plan. Maybe he's afraid of dying. He doesn't want to go because he doesn't want to die. He hates them because of their ethnicity. He hates them because of their wickedness. He doesn't want to see God working through them. He He knows that God's going to show them mercy, and he doesn't want them to receive mercy. And then number six, he doesn't want to be a part of God's saving plan. The basic point of why God is calling Jonah to do this is because God wants to show Nineveh Grace, he wants to offer them salvation. And Jonah says, I don't want to be a part of your salvation plan. 
God can save who he wants, when he wants, how he wants, all of this without consulting us. But he does use us. He's using Jonah. He's asking Jonah to be a part of this salvation plan. And Jonah says, I want out. I want none of this. Get somebody else. He says that because of reason number seven, another reason why he's running. He does not view, Jonah does not view sin the way that God does. This is another reason why Jonah's running, because he doesn't see sin the way that God sees sin. It should shock us to see Jonah's defiance. We've read this story so many times that we're used to it. He says, no, God says to do something. He says, no, I don't want to. But it should shock us to see this level of defiance. And by the way, there's no such thing as a little disobedience. Disobedience is an affront to God's character, and it's cosmic treason against him. It's saying, you're wrong, I'm right, I wish you were dead, and I wish I were king. Every form of disobedience is saying, I'm going in the exact opposite direction of where you're asking me to go. It's not saying, I'll do it, but just a little bit differently. Every form of disobedience is going, it's running from God in the exact opposite direction. Sin makes you so stupid that maybe like Jonah, you're thinking, I can outrun God's presence, or I can run in such a way where he won't see me. Or maybe he'll just ask somebody else to do the job that he's asking me to do. Maybe he thought this. There's just ultimately no good reason for me to be doing this. There's no good reason for me to be living out this command that God gave. I've thought it through. God, thanks for the command. But as I've looked at it, there's no good reason for me to do this. We've all been there, right? We've all been there where God tells us to do something and we think about it and we play it out in our mind and we go, no, nah, there's really no good reason to do that. It's kind of a dumb command, God. I don't get it. When this happens... We must decide right then and there in that moment, does God know best or do we know best? That's what it comes down to. Does God know best or do we know best? And the default mode of every human heart is that we know best, right? That's the default mode of our hearts. We know best. We know better than God. This is the default mode of our heart because we doubt God is good. That's why we sang the song earlier. You're always good. Even when he commands us to do something crazy, radical, like going to Nineveh, he's good. We doubt that he's good, though. We doubt that he's committed to our greatest joy. We doubt that he's committed to our greatest good and our greatest happiness. We take the commands that he gives us and we play them over in our minds and we think this isn't going to turn out well for me. This isn't going to work out well. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. It just seemed like there was no good reason why God made the rule that he made. Don't eat from that fruit in the middle of the tree of the garden. Don't eat from there. No good reason to obey that command, so let's go ahead and disobey. It doesn't really matter because there's no good reason for it in the first place. Adam and Eve like Jonah many years later, decided that if they couldn't think of a good reason for God's command to be there, then there wasn't one. God could not be trusted to have their best interests in mind, so they disobeyed. Jonah does not view sin the right way. Jonah thinks it's not sinful if I can reason against God's command and do what I want to do. I know better than God. By the way, there's another way to live out this sense of running from God. I said last week that we're going to see in Jonah, he's the prodigal son in Luke 15, and he's also the older brother in Luke 15. And I want to keep those lenses in our view as we study this book. Jonah, right off the bat, is going to be the prodigal son. I, I don't like you, God. I don't like your commands. I wish you were dead. I want to take your inheritance, and I want to run and do what I want to do. But there's another way where we, we can be just as sinful, just as defiant, but not look that part. 
if we are righteous enough on our own, if we're religious enough, if we're good enough, if we're virtuous enough, then we've paid our dues. And God just can't ask anything of us anymore. I've done everything that you've asked me to do, and therefore you can stop asking me to do anything. He owes us at that point. He's obligated to answer our prayers and to bless us. Both ways of sinning escape God because they assume that God is not good and he's not working for our greatest good, our greatest joy, our greatest happiness, and our greatest satisfaction. We sin in both of those ways, and both of those ways are running from God. One is a literal running away from God as far as you can get, like Jonah's doing in chapter 1. But another one is staying as close to him as possible, doing everything he tells you to do so that he owes you whatever you want. Both forms are sin. Both forms are trying to get away from God. You remember the older brother? He says, I've never neglected a command of yours, and yet you've never given me a young goat so that I can celebrate with my friends. I want to get your stuff and celebrate with other people. I don't want to be with you. I don't like you. I want to get out of your presence, but I'll stay in your presence as long as it takes to get out on my own. Both are sinful, and I think we'll see both in Jonah because he doesn't understand sin the way that God calls it, sees it, and pleads with us to turn from it. Finally, number eight, the final reason that Jonah runs from God. He does not glory in God's grace. Jonah runs from God. He disobeys God because he does not glory in God's grace. We sang it earlier, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that can pardon and cleanse within grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all of us, and marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who would believe. Jonah says, addendum, not the Ninevites, but not them. Freely bestowed on Jewish people, not Gentiles. Freely bestowed on decent people, not evil terrorists. There's a category in Jonah's mind for people who do not merit the grace of God. And you can see how ludicrous this is, even in the way I said it. They don't merit the grace of God. Grace is never merited in the first place. Jonah thinks, I've done enough to earn God's grace. Therefore, I can neglect God's command now. Who cares? I'm a Jew and I'm a good person. Nineveh can't do anything good enough to merit to earn God's grace. But that's a misunderstanding. That's a, a wrong definition of grace. And so Jonah runs because he doesn't glory in grace. It's impossible for you to minimize sin without devaluating God's grace. If you are humble in your recognition of sin, it produces and fuels confession and compassion. But if you minimize sin, you will devalue God's grace. The only people who get excited about grace are those who are quick to name themselves as sinners. If you don't name yourself as a sinner, you will not think that you need Jesus. And we all struggle with this. I need Jesus. And then when somebody comes into our life that we say, wow, they need Jesus way more than I do. And we forget about our need. And we think, wow, they are really in desperate need. When we do this, when we think that we've somehow escaped the need of grace, we run away from God. We don't run towards his grace. We run away from it. We don't need you, God. We can do this on our own. By the way, 
Jesus in the Gospels says Jonah's name more than any other prophet's name in the Old Testament. He keeps on bringing up Jonah over and over and over again. Why? He loves Jonah because Jonah demonstrates not only God's love for Gentiles, but Jonah demonstrates what God's grace looks like. Pagan people who are not worthy of living, God gives them not only life in the physical sense, but life eternal. Would you stop this morning and say, God, I am a a man or woman in desperate need of grace. I'm in desperate need of grace. And I need people to come alongside me to help me, to to show me my need for grace. This This is a difficult prayer to pray because we have to stay humble in receiving God's helpers in our lives to show us, hey, you might think that you've grown a lot, but you still need to grow. You need help and you need God's grace to do it. Do you love what God loves? Do you hate what God hates? Do you think what God thinks? Do you feel what God feels? And will you have humility to receive help when you don't, when you need to be aligned with God's will? Do you have a critical attitude towards others? If you do, if you have a critical attitude towards others, you are showing that you don't know you need grace just like we see Jonah struggling with. By the way, you never have to be afraid of confessing that you're critical of others and that you don't have God's heart because God has come in the work, in the personal work of Jesus Christ and given us the Holy Spirit to give us a new heart. That's why God came. That's the gospel. So we see God's clear decree. We see Jonah's calculated defiance. Does that shock you? Does his defiance shock you? It should. But I don't want us to stand aloof from Jonah and say, how could he do that? We're right in the boat with him. We're running away from God ourselves through our own sin and disobedience. Where where are you running this morning from God? Where do you say in your own heart and through your own actions, God, that command doesn't make sense. I know better than you. You have no good reason for that. I'm going to do what I want to do. Jonah's immediate response to the call of God is to run. Yes, maybe because it's a hard thing for God to ask Jonah to to do for all these eight reasons that we talked about. But ultimately, he just decides, I know better. Maybe God's calling you to do something very difficult. Maybe God's calling you to do something hard. Maybe there's difficult people in your life that God's calling you to minister to. Do you trust him? Do you trust him enough to do hard things and not to run? By the way, Sunday mornings, those are easy days, right? These are easy days. The call upon our life to be here, to be present, to be in his word, that's easy to obey. It's, you know, Tuesday night when you're exhausted, had a long day at work, you've had the worst conversation with your best friend, and your your spouse is angry with you and impatient with you, and the kids are going crazy, that's when life is hard and God calls you to do things that maybe you say, "I I don't feel like there's any good reason. How do you respond to God's hard calls? Do you question his goodness? Do you question his presence? Do you envy the lives of others? The bottom line is if you begin this book, if we begin this study by separating ourselves from Jonah, We're not going to get everything we're supposed to get out of this book. Our self-righteousness always gets in the way of receiving what God wants to give. So we end where we began. 
On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement in synagogues, the Jews read the book of Jonah and they all declare, we are Jonah. And we do the exact same thing. We've read verses one through three and we should say, we're Jonah. We're afraid. Where we should be courageous and emboldened. We look down on others, maybe for their ethnicity, their religion, or their wickedness. We think people are beyond saving, and therefore they're not even worth the gospel going to them. We see people in our lives as worthy only of punishment. We don't engage in God's mission around the world, or even in our hometown, or, or even in our street and our neighborhood. We don't view sin the way that God does. We don't love grace, but rather we live our lives based on merit and performance. We're Jonah. God's word has come to us, and it's not unclear. It's not fuzzy. It's crystal clear, and yet we defy. God's word has come to kids saying, arise, go, and obey your parents. That's not an unclear command, and yet we run from God. We defy. God's word has come to wives. Arise, go, and submit to your husbands. Respect them, love them, cherish them, honor them, and yet we disobey. We run and we go the opposite direction. God's word has come to husbands. Arise, go, love cherish your wives, lead them the way that Christ loves and gave himself for the church. And yet we husbands say, that's a little bit too hard. That's kind of unreasonable for you to ask. I'm going to get up and go to Tarshish. God's given so many clear commands in the Bible. Be baptized. Submit to your bosses. Submit to others in love. Be unified. Fight for unity and peace. Uh, don't love money. Forgive others. Don't be embittered. So many different commands. And we all say, arise and we go to Tarshish. We're all Jonah. That is all of us except for one. Jonah fails. Israel as a whole fails. Everyone around us fails. Except for one. Jesus is the only person who was not defiant. In fact, he's the exact opposite. He perfectly obeys every command that the Father gives. Where Jonah fails, where you and I fail, where Israel failed, where the church fails, Jesus succeeds. And he gives you and I a message of hope. I have obeyed in your place. I've been punished in your place. I can give you a record of righteousness so that you don't earn it. You, you never could. I'm going to give you a record of righteousness so that you don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. I'm going to give you a record of righteousness and I'm going to take your punishment upon myself so that there is no condemnation if you are in me. Can I just plead with you this morning? Turn to Christ and live. Stop running from him. Turn to Christ and live. Confess your sin for what it is, an affront against him, and find your hope and your salvation in God alone, not in you being good enough. We never could be good enough. That's why God in his grace was good enough for us. Trust in his perfection, not your own. Cherish him and you will live. I don't know about you, but at the end of verse 3, if I'm writing the book of Jonah and if I'm God, the book of Jonah would have ended in verse 3. Jonah says, I'm going to Tarshish, and God says, fine, I'll get somebody else. I would have been done with Jonah. But not Jesus. Brothers and sisters, God is not done with Jonah he has four chapters of second, third, fourth, fifth chances. And God's not done with you, and he's not done with me. Jonah runs, and he runs, and he runs, and you might be doing the same thing. You might be running away from God, even now. 
running from God. And yet, as far as Jonah runs, and as quickly as he can run away, God's always one step ahead of him, chasing him down with grace. And my friends, God is doing the same thing for you and for me today. As far as we would run, God is chasing us down with his glorious, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. That's why, unless we begin in this book of Jonah, unless we begin with seeing how far and how fast and how defiant Jonah is, we're never going to glory in the grace of God running and chasing him down one step ahead every way, every step of the way. So we start with some very bad news. We look inward. We see absolute reason for condemnation. And then we see God running to chase you and me down and to say, I'm not done with you. I'm still going to use you. Don't give up. Don't keep running. Turn to me and live. Would you do that this morning? Turn to Christ, your rock, your redeemer. Turn to him and live. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word that leads us to your grace. Your word shows us our need for Jesus. It shows us in devastating fashion how bad we are. We don't want to think that we are that despicable. We don't want to see our own sinfulness as that messed up. We look at Jonah and so often we think, yeah, he's doing something awful, but I would never be that bad. And yet, God, we are. We are that bad. So, God, I pray that you would help us this day to see ourselves rightly in light of our need for Jesus. That we would not shy away from declaring, I am a wreck. My life is ruined because of my sin. I'm running from salvation, and I'm hopeless on my own. God, may we not shy away from that. Help us to run to Christ, knowing that he is there with open arms for the vilest of sinners, the chief of sinners, and that we would, with great expectation of hope of being welcomed by the Holy of Holies, by the the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That you and your grace have saved our ruined lives. And now we, with every fiber of our being, we long to glorify and praise you all our days. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, our gracious Savior, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.
remember the beauty of the gospel as we sing, O Lord, my rock. our prayer this morning that God's amazing grace would excite our hearts, inflame our passions, and encourage us as we live the rest of this Lord's Day and the rest of this week. We'll have Bible studies on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. We'll be back here again live streaming 1030, Lord willing, next Lord's Day as we dive into Jonah chapter 1. God bless you as you serve Jesus, as you follow him, and as you glory in Him alone, your rock and your redeemer. God bless.